Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1199, air date March 26th, 2023. Good evening, everyone, or good afternoon, or good morning, wherever you are. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Uh, today, I have a very special guest with me again, Paul Clark, and Paul will be joining us shortly. Paul's a professor uh, of law and also a legal scholar. But what we're going to be talking about is this is a continuation of the discussion Paul and I started a couple of weeks ago about uh, the nature of why I can become president um, and why it's unconstitutional in order to, if anyone gets in the way of me trying to become president, talking about um, Article uh, to section one, because the constitution ha has changed and it constantly does keep changing. So Paul and I, a couple of weeks ago, we gave, a, Paul uh, gave an excellent description of about how the constitution uh, has gone through this process. But one of the important discussions that came up, some of the people on uh, the internet and social media were saying, hey, you know, the constitution never changes. And uh, according to, you know, article to section one, Dr. Shiva can never be president. So obviously this is gonna be an educational process we're doing and we're very, very fortunate to have Paul Clark here. Paul Clark is an eminent scholar and he's a one of the legal scholars who's really uh, written some wonderful, uh, a wonderful thesis on this, clearly demonstrating that the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment makes it unconstitutional uh, to not allow me to become president. So we discussed that earlier, but today what Paul and I are gonna really get into is the next part of this education really to educate people about how the constitution has constantly changed, right? And the various ways it changes. And Paul's gonna walk us through some very important discussion on how um, the Supreme Court uh, and the courts have been involved in um, supporting the evolution of the constitution. That's what we're gonna talk about today. And in a, a follow-up discussion, we're gonna talk about some very important um, cases that really uh, uh, went through the court process and clearly stated that you cannot make a naturalized citizen or naturalized citizen cannot be treated differently than a native born citizen, further supporting this argument why a naturalized citizen can in fact become president. But that'll be for a follow-up discussion. But today, um, Paul and I are really gonna uh, go at it and educate all of you how the constitution changes, okay? To those of you on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Twitch, um, as many of you know that um, these platforms are still very, very, uh, uh, still practicing shadow banning and big tech censorship. So this first part of it is we've given a little bit of an overview. Paul, you may just want to say hello to everyone. Paul, are you there? Hi, Dr. Shiva. Good to have you. Uh, yeah, great, you great to have you, Paul. So to everyone listening, uh, John, our producer, will switch us over. So please go to vashiva.com and you can see this continuing to run over there, okay? And we'll just start there. So all of you on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, we encourage you to go to vashiva.com. There's a link um, that's in somewhere above or below in the description that'll take you over to vashiva.com so you can continue watching this discussion as John has just put up, click the link to continue or go to vashiva.com to watch the full uncensored video. So we'll count five, four, 
three, two, one, and we're over on vashiva.com. So uh, thank you everyone on Facebook. We'll see you there, YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter. We'll see you over there. So look forward to seeing you there to have this wonderful discussion on how the constitution changes. So Paul, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to, good to have you, Paul. So Paul, um, maybe do, do we just wanna summarize in like two or three minutes so we don't repeat on the key salient points from uh, uh, why it's unconstitutional to discriminate against a naturalized citizen to become president, just the key points. And then we'll go to this, how the constitution changes. Sure, so to just in 60 seconds, uh, of course, as we all know, article one of the unamended constitution says that only a natural born citizen is eligible to be president. Now that raises already all kinds of issues. What does it mean to be a natural born citizen and so forth anyway? Um, but of course the constitution has been amended and it wasn't long after the constitution was first adopted that the fifth amendment was passed among others of the so-called bill of rights and the fifth amendment uh, again, to make a long story short, the Fifth Amendment prohibits discrimination based upon status as a naturalized citizen. And this has been settled law for decades. In other words, it's not even it's not even controversial anymore. You, the Fifth Amendment does not allow the federal government to discriminate between natural born citizens and naturalized citizens. They must be treated the same as, as a fundamental uh, part of due process. So uh, obviously, if you have an amendment to the constitution which changes something, then the amendment prevails. So again, it, there's, a, there's a longer story to it, but the 60 second summary, that's why a someone who it, it was born abroad and is a citizen now can still become president. And we can even get into the question of what is a natural born citizen? Cause that, that that's all, even, even that is a complicated question of how do you define natural born citizen? Yeah, and I, I know Paul, I was reading a, another legal brief um, and it was basically saying this whole concept of natural born. Um, they did some interesting analysis showing that it's such a hazy, confusing term. It only appears once that term in the entire constitution. And they were going and looking at British law where the founders may have come up with that term. Um, and, and there's so many variations on it. At, at best, it's confusing that term. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There was actually a case back in the, uh, around 1800, where, of course, the Marquis de Lafayette, as you all, as we all know, fought in the American Revolution, and he was one of the commanders, and he was given status as a quote-unquote natural-born citizen. He wasn't just made a citizen; he was made a natural-born citizen. So, so it suggests that you know, even by statute, Congress could make anybody they want a quote-unquote natural-born citizen. So, again, it, 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 it's it's very strange what, because natural-born doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. So that's, again, one of, one of the interpretive problems, you know, that, that we can get into more. But obviously, the point we want to talk more about today is how do we interpret constitutional texts and how do those uh, understandings of the Constitution evolve over time? How do they become settled? Again, the, the term settled law is something that, that's come to have a fixed meaning. In other words, it's something where we're over decades past and everybody comes to accept it. And again, this idea of the Fifth Amendment is settled law. Now, natural born citizen is not settled because it's again, it's it's, it's kind of a, an odd term. But again, I think that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to talk. Yeah, Paul, well, on, on the natural born, I, I was doing a little bit of research. It said that even in British common law, they had this concept of just soli and just sanguinis, right? 
natural born could be, did you come from the soil or right. was it through blood? And what you're saying is when they gave the Marquis de Lafayette a natural born, that's a whole nother world, which is- Yeah, they just, decided, they just declared, yeah. by the way, you're now a natural born citizen. Right. So, so again, it, it suggests that the term natural born is not as it, it, all that fixed. In other right. words, it doesn't necessarily absolutely mean you were born you know, in the territorial United States. I mean, even then, again, there's there's Congress has said that if you're born somewhere else, but you're a a descendant or, or you know, your, your parents are citizens, then you're considered a quote unquote natural born citizen, even though you weren't born in the United States. So, again, if the term itself is is somewhat problematic and not always entirely clear and uh, it seems to be open to, uh, you know, interpretation and also maybe change to some extent by Congress. Because again, if Congress can well, declare anybody they want to be a natural born citizen, then you know, what does it mean? What I find fascinating is that law, you know, as a biologist, the law itself is an organism. It's changing and it's evolving and it's going through various stages like any organism does. Um, so it has its own structures, which are changing, the interconnections are changing. But what I wanna sort of focus on, and, and, and when we spoke earlier was, you know, I announced my run uh, last week, right? A couple of weeks ago that we're running for president and it's pretty historic because I think it's the first time a naturalized citizen, and correct me if I'm wrong, has actually declared their run for US president, openly saying, I'm a naturalized citizen right. running for US president. So I think our uh, run is historic. But um, when we put it out there, most of the people are very, very excited, but there were a few people who said, oh, you can't run Dr. Shiva, you can't run for president. And the funny thing is this one woman said, the constitution has not changed. Don't you know the constitution has not changed? And I uh, sort of tweeted back and I said, are you sure you want to me to quote you on that? The constitution has not changed. And I found some references and I said, here are 20 plus times the constitution has changed. So we want to focus on that, Paul, because um, we want to, I think, get people to understand perhaps the first part of this discussion is the, I think, the three ways, at least the three ways, how the Constitution can change. And then perhaps you can walk us through, Paul, the two or three case laws we've discussed uh, specific to this whole concept of how, in fact, the Constitution gets interpreted one way and another way, and then how it does change based on court rulings. Right. Well, perhaps, Paul, you can start us with sort of the three ways how the Constitution does change. Sure. And uh, one thing I just before I get to that, I might suggest it, it might sound better to people. Just, it's just rhetorical difference, frankly, but to talk about constitutional law changing or constitutional understanding changes. Now, I don't mean all, I don't think ultimately there's a difference. You know, you're saying the same thing, but that might strike people's ears as just sounding better. I mean, constitutional law changes, I say. Right. So you can. So yeah. they may say, well, OK, sure, I can understand the constitutional law evolves. So I can understand that constitutional mm -hmm. understanding changes. Again, that might just sound better to people. Right. But That's cool. I, guess, I, I don't think there's a difference. So you're saying the yeah. same thing at the end of the day, but but maybe right. that's more more palatable to some people. But in any event. So. So, again, obviously, the Constitution does change and has changed the, the, the first way, of course, was the amendments, the so-called Bill of Rights. Right. So the, the you know, very soon after, in fact, even, even before the Constitution was adopted, James Madison and other Federalists promised that they would amend it because, again, there were concerns about how the, what, what the Constitution meant and uh, concerns about other limitations. 
So the Constitution, one way that, that it changes is simply by amendment, and, and that's happened. In so, Paul, just timeline-wise, you had these articles, right? And then that was it. And then you had the amendments, right? right. Give us a timeline of when the, the articles came in and when the first set of amendments came in. Okay. So, yeah. Right. So, so the Constitutional Convention uh, is in 1787 in Philadelphia, and it's uh, chaired by George Washington, who was revered by you know all the Americans. But in, and it's widely acknowledged that that was illegal because they had no authority to have a constitutional convention. Just like imagine a bunch of people got together today and had a constitutional convention and said, "By the way, we have a new government." But regardless, putting that aside, uh, George Washington and his followers who described themselves as Federalists, they, they, they put together a constitution. And in the constitution, they, they, they uh, again, this new constitution, this proposed constitution, they provided uh, a, a couple of important provisions. So one was, it said that the new government would come into effect if it were approved by nine states. Uh, and so, and, and again, they didn't really have authority to do this, but the point was the states actually by ratifying it, essentially seceded from the Articles of Confederation and entered the new constitution. It's called the same country, the United States of America. But anyway, but in so in the constitution itself, the new constitution, it provides a couple of different methods of amending the constitution itself. So the first way and the way that's always been followed so far is Congress can recommend constitutional amendments and send them to the states. Now, again, only the states can amend the Constitution. Congress can't change anything because Congress can only pass laws. They can't, they, laws have to follow the Constitution. But Congress can pass recommendations and send them to the states for ratification. And again, under the, the terms of the Constitution, three-fourths of the states must approve any constitutional change. And that's what happened in the Bill of Rights. James Madison writes a, a list of 12 amendments, sends them to the states, 10 of which were ultimately approved. Well, 11 eventually, because the 28th Amendment was actually the first amendment originally. But anyway, but not getting into a long thing. But anyway, but the point is, Congress can make recommendations and send it to the states. That's the first way. But the Constitution also provides for a convention of states. So the states themselves can cut Congress out and just meet in convention, and they can they can amend. How many how many states again? The three quarters. You need well, a three quarters, right? So so three quarters. So what's uh, three quarters of fifty? Roughly. Well, thirty-seven basically. So thirty-seven states today meet. They can amend the constitution right now. Right. Okay. Under the constitution. Now again, or, that's not happened, but it's but that's one of the ways it's permitted under the constitution. And, or you know, or the other ways Congress sends its recommendations to the states, and then right. still three quarters. Okay, and what's the third way? Well, the third way that is how things normally happen is the Constitution is is essentially the, the understanding of it evolves over time. Uh, and this, again, is the most common way and the normal way that, again, if you want to call it the Constitution or constitutional law, is, is constantly evolving. And again, this is something that goes all the way back to the first days. In fact, even before the Constitution was approved, and again, to get into to sort of, because I think this is what we want to focus on today. If you go all the way back to 1787, oh, by the way, I didn't give you the full time scheme. I got, sorry, I got a little yes, so, so you had the Articles of Confederation, 1787, they have this quote unquote illegal meeting, some sense. And then they. Well, an unapproved, an unapproved un meeting. <laughs> unapproved meeting. And then they say, now we have this thing called the Constitution. Right. So, so yes. it's. 
so in the summer of 1787, George Washington and, and, and about, I think it's about 60 or 70 guys get together. They, uh, they, they say, we have a constitution for you. They send it out to the states. And by uh, 1788, nine states had approved. And what did that initial constitution have, Paul? All the articles and the and the first the Bill of Rights? No, 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 no Bill of Rights at this point. Okay. This is just okay. the first uh, seven uh, articles. So the Article. unamended constitution has seven articles. Okay, got it. Okay. Article one is the presidency. Article two is is the so Article one is the is the Congress. Article two is the presidency. Right. Article three is is the courts and so forth. So anyway, and, and it is in Article two where they talk about this natural born in Section one. Correct. It gives okay. it gives the qualifications to be president. Yeah. So any case. So so again, just to give the quick timeline. So 1789, the Constitution is officially approved. Now, in the Virginia ratifying convention. Now, George Washington was from Virginia. Everybody wanted George Washington to be the first president. In fact, he probably could have been king if he'd wanted to be. I mean, that's mm -hmm. how popular he was. But anyway, mm -hmm. everyone wanted George Washington to be president. So if Virginia did not ratify the Constitution, it was not going to happen. So Virginia was crucial, and it was the biggest state, the most populous state, and it was the state with George Washington. And so uh, it, 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 was, it was very close call in Virginia. It didn't look like Virginia was going to ratify. Oh, wow. I didn't so know that. Huh. It was very, very close. Yeah. But what happened, what turns the tide is the Federalists in Virginia, led by Madison and some others. Now, the Federalists just to let everyone know, or the people want a strong the Constitution. The Federalists yeah. want the new Constitution. The Anti-Federalists just want to stick to the Articles. Right. They, they, they just want, the Federalists, by and large, want this strong sort of central government. The Anti-Federalists want power in the states. Well, well, yes and no. But again, strong central government is relative because nothing like what we have today is even remotely like what yeah. we have in 1788. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, but the point is, the so so James Madison and, and his fellow Federalists, in order to salvage Virginia, which looks like they're going to lose, it looks like the Constitution is going to go down to defeat in Virginia. They, they promise, they say, OK, we will immediately enact a Bill of Rights having the, the some of these issues that you anti-federalists are concerned about and the virginia convention actually attaches to the so they, they they have a bill that says we approve the constitution but we want to see the following changes or amendments mm -hmm. and that was that was attached to the virginia ratifying convention approval and uh madison kept his word in the very first congress madison drafted a series of amendments again there were ultimately 12 and then they were sent out to to the to the states for ratification. Ten of them were ratified, and they became law in 1791. So in 1791, the Bill of Rights comes into effect. And again, one of the provisions that's the most important for our our discussion is the Fifth Amendment. Fifth mm -hmm. Amendment says that the, that the federal government may not deprive any person of due process or take away property without just compensation and so forth. But again, it's that it's that Fifth Amendment and its due process understanding that was crucial for for our, our uh, purposes. But again, that, that's the basic thing. And then the Constitution is amended again a few years later. Uh, the 11th Amendment is added in, uh, I think it's approved in 1794, just a few years later. And then uh, the 12th Amendment. Just to be clear, Paul, the 11th Amendment will come again, but the 11th Amendment basically says you cannot sue uh, a state government in federal court, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Very important. Okay. 
Right. And there's a whole background for that. We can we can. Talk. Right. Anyway, so that but that's the basic thing. So so then, of course, uh, again, we have lots of different amendments over the years. The 14th Amendment is adopted in 1781. And, uh, and that's an important uh, understanding as well. But in any event, but that, that's kind of the basic time. I mean, 1791, right? Not 81. So what did I, what did I say? It's, it's 18, 1871. 1871. Yeah. 1871. 1871. 14th Amendment. Yep. Is adopted. Yeah. Which is also disputed whether that was legal because there's a whole thing about <laughs> how many states approved it. And it's, that's a mess. And the 14th Amendment is fundamentally about equal protection, right? The 14th Amendment, yes, is also about equal protection and due process. Right. Okay. So, so that's sort of the broad, broad strokes history, right? Right. Now let's talk about Paul, about uh, this uh, point that this person had brought up saying constitutional law, e.g. constitution has never changed. Right. So let's, so again, let's, let's go all the way back to 1788, right? Yeah. Uh, or well, 1787 even, but yeah. 1787 to 1788, we have this proposed constitution. Now, there has never been a law or a document in the history of mankind which is without ambiguity. It's impossible. There's, there's, there's no way to do it. So there were enormous disputes and debates about what the new constitution meant. And this was, again, a, a dispute between federalists and anti-federalists. When you so, say the new, the, these, these articles, right? The, the, right. The proposed, the proposed constitution. Right. Right. So again, one, one of, just to give you one example, Article 3 talks about the powers of the courts. So in fact, you might, I don't know if you want to do this, Dr. Shiv, if you wanted to even share for, it might be easier for your yes. people to follow. We could even put it up and we could follow through. It might be easier for people if that's something you want you to bring do. up Article 3 of the Constitution. Yeah, you, want, you want to share that and we can we can talk about it? Yes, I can. Uh, I have Article okay, I'll, 3. I'll keep talking while you, while you work on this. So again, yeah. the, the point was, the, the new constitution itself seems to have some ambiguities. Now, right. remember, the anti-federalists want to preserve state sovereignty. They, they were very happy with the, the, the loose confederation of states, and they didn't want the federal government meddling a whole lot in, uh, in, the, in the pairs of the states. I have so, Article 3 up, Paul. I don't know okay, if you... Yeah, 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 it's okay. So one of the issues that came about... So, by the way, could you scroll down to section two? Section two is yeah. actually more the point I want to right. I want to get to. Yeah. Um, this is section. Still section one. Section. You have section two. Yeah. So, so section two uh, lists the jurisdiction of the federal courts. And again, if you can pull that up, but I, well, I Article three, section section two. This is, all, this is all one. Okay. Section two, right here, right? Yeah, Article 3, Section 2. Yeah, right here. The judicial power shall extend this uh, one. Well, that's... Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's Section 2, right? So so, uh, so let me take a step back. So as I said, every law, every constitution has ambiguities, right? So one of the issues is who resolves ambiguities when there is an ambiguity in, say, a constitution? Now... In some constitutions, this is spelled out explicitly. So, for instance, in the Netherlands and in, uh, in some other countries like uh, Switzerland, 
it's explicitly stated that the courts are not allowed to declare an act of, of the legislature unconstitutional. The constitutionality is by the Constitution explicitly entrusted to the legislative branch, right? And then there are other, other countries, uh, like in Germany, where they have constitutional courts. Only the constitutional court can, can ultimately interpret the Constitution, right? The lower courts just have to do what the legislature tells them to do, right? So there are times when that's spelled out. It's not spelled out in the United States Constitution. Who so, Paul, what you're saying is, so if there's an ambiguity in the Constitution, um, various other constitutions explicitly say how that... Con how that ambiguity should be adjudicated yeah. in some sense exactly. or resolved. But they in the United States Constitution, there is no due process for how you adjudicate. Well, it's a, not spelled out. It's just it's, left it's, it's left open. Uh-huh. So again, we could have a provision that says any ambiguity is entrusted to the president. The president shall de declare the final meaning of the Constitution. I say So here, oh. what does it say? It says cases or controversies, right? Right. Which, which, is, which is itself ambigu ambiguous because uh -huh. what is a case or controversy is, is has been debated. But in any case, but so the, but the point is, so in 1787, 1788, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists are already debating this. And indeed, one of the big issues that they debated over was the power of the courts. The Anti-Federalists thought that this Constitution gave the courts too much power. And they were concerned that federal courts might interfere in the workings of the states. And again, this comes back to, you have up on screen, this uh, article too, right? So this uh, says the judicial power shall extend to all cases uh, arising under the constitution, laws, or treaties, to cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and counsel, uh, admiralty, maritime, so forth, to controversy between the United States as a party, to controversies between two or more states, and then this is one of the crucial points between a state and citizens of another state. Now, the anti-federalists said, well, wait a minute. That seems to allow a citizen of, say, Massachusetts to sue the state of Georgia and get the federal government, federal courts intervene and, and, and tell the state of Georgia how, how they're going to behave. And that seems like that's giving an awful lot of power. To federal courts. Now, the Federalists said, no, 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 that's not what this means. So in the Federalist Papers, I believe it's the Federalist 84, Hamilton says, no, wait a minute, you anti-Federalists misunderstand this. When the cases extend to states between a state and citizens of another state, that means Massachusetts can sue a citizen of, uh, of Georgia but a citizen of Georgia cannot sue Massachusetts. So again, the point is states are sovereign. And Madison, uh, Ham, excuse me, Hamilton says this in the Federalist Papers. States are sovereign. Individuals can't sue states. That's, that's a given. And so when we say in this Constitution that the federal courts will have jurisdiction in suits between a state and citizens of another state, we mean states can sue citizens, but citizens cannot sue states. Not cannot happen, will not happen, never will happen. I How about a can a state sue another state? Yes, that's another thing here again. It says uh, between, uh, uh, let's see, where's the provision? Controversies between, between between two or more states. Two or more states, right. So that's explicitly yeah. there. States can sue other states because they're both sovereign. 
right? Uh -huh. so get a, but but the thought was that's not going to happen very often. Again, Massachusetts can sue New York or whatever. So so a state can sue a citizen of another state, but a citizen of, of another state cannot sue a state. That's what Matt is, excuse me, what Hamilton said. He said, when, when this says cases between a state and citizens in another state, that means a state sues a citizen, but not vice versa. Uh -huh. A citizen can never sue a state mm -hmm. because states are sovereign. Got so, it. again, th th there are other things, but this is one example of something where there seems to be an ambiguity here. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear, although, again, people right, particularly with this, it doesn't seem whether it's reciprocal or not. Right. Whether it, goes it doesn't either say way. that it does right. have state first. You could say, well, it's between a state and citizens of another state. So it's because state comes first. It's maybe it means state versus citizen, but not again, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. But again, there is an ambiguity here. So there was a legitimate ambiguity in the Constitution. Right. Where, where, where if you just looked at this text, reasonable people could disagree. So, again, Hamilton assures the people don't. You want me to, you want me to still keep this up, Paul, or no? Well, there's another provision we can mention. Okay. Um, okay. Again, go down to the next clause if you can. Can you go down to section um, three or clause two? No, it's clause two. Section okay. two, clause two. Yeah, there you go. Uh, okay, so so this is the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, and this is going to be important as well. So again, I'll mention this while I have it up. This tells us what the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court will be, right? So it says, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, or counsel, and in those which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all other cases, the Supreme Court is appellate jurisdiction. Now, again, Hamilton says explicitly when we're talking about sovereigns, right? So states and foreign governments, these are sovereignties. And, and you can't just have an individual sue a sovereign. But even when there's a, a case involving a state suing an individual, that case is going to go right to the Supreme Court because, again, sovereignty and protecting sovereignty is so important. The Supreme Court is going to have original and exclusive jurisdiction over all cases involving foreign governments and state governments. And again, Hamilton tells us explicitly. Okay, so, so Paul, if a state government sues an individual, that goes under Supreme Court. Is that what you're saying? Right for the Supreme Court. Right, or if a state sues, or if a foreign government. Or a state sues another state, or state sues a foreign government, right. Or a foreign government sues an American citizen, right, right. to the Supreme Court. Right, okay, so it doesn't go to a lower court, it's got to go to the Supreme Court. Got to go to the Supreme Court. Okay, so state sues... Uh, state of Massachusetts sues you in Alaska. It goes to, according to this, it goes to the Supreme Court. Goes to the Supreme Court. Okay. Now, again, this seems to be pretty clear. Now, the first example I gave, there does seem to be a legitimate ambiguity. It says suits between states and citizens of other states. Maybe you could interpret that to, to right. be, be reciprocal, or maybe you can interpret it one way. Uh, clause two seems to be pretty clear. There doesn't seem to be a lot of ambiguity there. When sovereigns are, are parties to the suit, Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. In other cases, it's appellate jurisdiction. In other mm -hmm. words, appellate means it starts in lower court and then you can appeal it to the Supreme Court, but you, you, you can't go directly to the Supreme Court. Okay, so again, like I said, I think that's an example of both one where there's a pretty clear rule in, in, uh, in the jurisdictional uh, clause, and then uh, a, a fairly ambiguous rule in terms of 
the jurisdiction between citizens of, of, of states suing states. Okay, so again, we'll we're going to talk more about those two examples. But again, the point is, the 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 the, the first case, Madison said, excuse me, Hamilton <laughs> said, you can never sue a state in federal court. Don't worry about it. Now they didn't really even argue over the next one because it was so clear. Nobody thought there was any ambiguity there. So we don't. You mean between really a state between a state suing a citizen? No, no, no. I mean in terms of the original jurisdiction. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the first first thing is. It was clear that um, a state could never be sued in federal court, right? Well, so that wasn't entirely clear uh, that a state couldn't sue a uh, that a, me, a citizen couldn't sue a state. But right. that is, Hamilton says no, that's never going to happen. Don't worry about it. That's not right. what we need. Right. So that that reciprocity going the other way he said that'll never happen. So that'll um, never happen. You sure? But when it comes to jurisdiction, it was just very clear. Yeah, that um, wasn't that wasn't even seriously. Even the anti-federals didn't say, "Well, come on now, this is anti-federal." Right, they, right. they were like, "Yeah, okay, that's pretty clear." We nobody's. Right. And Hamilton but, mentions. Hamilton says, "Yeah, by the way, he explains why it's there." He says, "Yeah, because it's so sovereigns are so important." Right. You don't want a sovereign to be in court in any lesser tribunal. When they were talking but, about the a point you're trying to bring up, Paul, Article Three, there's something that's very clear and something that could be potentially ambiguous. Exactly. And it was in there in the Constitution. And this is the nature of any document. It'll always have ambiguities. The United, States, right. yeah, the United States Constitution, however, didn't have a way to resolve ambiguities, unlike right. other constitutions. Okay, so that's a key well, take. Not, not explicitly, but so let's go through the history a little bit. So again, uh, of these two clauses. So we're going to talk about these two specific clauses from Article 3. So the first uh, case that comes up, you, you don't have to, I mean, you can keep it up if you want, but, but, okay, but I'm talking about some cases. So the first really important case that comes up is Chisholm versus Georgia. So Chisholm is a citizen, I, I think of North Carolina, South Carolina, anyway, it doesn't matter, but he's not a citizen of Georgia. Chisholm claims that Georgia owes him money. He claims he gave them supplies during the Revolutionary War, and he claims they owe him whatever, $10,000 or something, right? So he, he wants to file suit against Georgia, and he files suit originally in federal circuit court. Now, today, the trial courts are called district courts. Back then, they were called circuit courts. And where does he file, Paul? Chisholm is a citizen of Georgia? He, no, or? no, he's a citizen. I think, of, I think of he's a citizen of North Carolina. But he's not a citizen, definitely not a citizen of Georgia. I could be wrong. Where does he file in Georgia federal court? He or? fires in federal circuit court in Georgia. Oh, so he's he a citizen of, of, of North Carolina. Yeah. And, he, and he goes to Georgia to file against Georgia. Yes. In okay, federal it. court in Georgia. Got it. Okay. Okay. So the trial court dismisses his suit. They say, we don't have jurisdiction. Now, they don't rule on the merits. So one, one of the, the, the most important factors is if a court does not have jurisdiction, it cannot address the merits, and it must dismiss what's called without prejudice. It means we haven't adjudicated your suit. This court doesn't have jurisdiction. Maybe there's some court somewhere else that does. Now, I recently had a case, but there's a little bit of an aside, but I recently had a case where a gentleman came to me. He had been pro se and representing himself, and he had filed a case in New Jersey and the court in that case said, we don't have jurisdiction and we're going to dismiss with prejudice. You can never bring it anywhere. And I said, well, that's crazy. And I actually, the guy came in and we had to refile and get this overturned and pointed out to this judge who who, who knew better, but I think was just being dishon admittedly dishonest. I think she was literally being dishonest. She didn't like this guy, just wanted I to get rid of this case. Anyway, but again, the point is 
when you file in a, in a court that doesn't have jurisdiction, you have you, you dismiss with with without prejudice. It means without prejudice. you have another court where you can you can where you can file suit. Go ahead, God bless you. It's up to you. anyway. So it's dismissed in the the federal circuit court because the federal circuit court rules we don't have jurisdiction. Why? Well, we just saw Article Three says in any state and any suit involving states, it has to be brought in the Supreme Court. Now, again, the, 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 the judge who ruled on this was actually also a justice, Justice Aredell, because, again, back then, the Supreme Court justices rode circuit. They would actually go out and do trials. Uh, but anyway, they don't do that anymore. But again, this was something that actually happened. Same way, but it, was, it is interesting that there was a Supreme Court justice, Justice Aredell, riding circuit, is in Georgia, and here's the case. Guy comes before the court. Justice Aredell says, I'm dismissing this case. We don't have jurisdiction because Article 3 is very clear. Any state in which any case in which a state should be a party must be brought in the first instance in the Supreme Court. So he says, yeah, I guess you're right. It's OK. I mean, that's pretty clear. OK, so so what does he do? He, he, he says, fine. He picks up his 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 bag. And he goes to Washington, D.C. Well, it wasn't like that. It wasn't Washington, D.C. It was still, I think, in New York at that time. Because remember, first it was Philadelphia, then it was New York. So right. the capital was New York. But anyway, wherever it was, he goes to the Supreme Court and he files suit again. And he says, uh, yeah. I why does he go to, why does, oh, why did, oh, he go, oh, he files suit in the Supreme Court now. The Supreme Court. Okay. Because you had to file suit in the Supreme Court because that was where the only jurisdiction was for, for right. suit against a state. But again, there's this ambiguity because it was typically a state against a citizen. Here, a citizen is going against a, a state. Right. Well, well, this is 1793. This is very early in the process, right? This, yeah. is, this, this is happening very early on. This is one of the very, very, very first cases the Supreme Court has. So anyway, he so he goes to Washington. Again, he doesn't go to Washington. I think he goes to New York. He goes to the Capitol. <laughs> Put it that way. I keep wanting to think Washington's Capitol. He goes to the Capitol and he files suit as original matter in the Supreme Court. Now, Georgia, of course, says, wait a minute, we have sovereign immunity. We, we can't, Hamilton told us, you can, a citizen can't sue a state in federal court. So we refused, they refused to even argue the merits. They said, look, you don't have jurisdiction. We're not going to argue the merits of the case because, frankly, it shouldn't be here. Now, a majority of the court, though, rules that when Article Three. Section two says the courts can hear suits between citizens of a state and another state. They say, well, we think that allows this kind of suit. We know that Hamilton said it doesn't, but OK, but we, we disagree. We think that uh, Chisholm, as a citizen of North Carolina, can sue Georgia in federal court. Right. So they take this. So they, they interpret a clause one, which is between a state and a citizen, where where Madison has said, no, definitely a state can go after a citizen, not a citizen after a state. That's right. And they, they using this clause too, they say, yes, you can uh, put it into the Supreme Court. That's what you're saying. Well, well, everyone agreed it had to be in the Supreme Court. Right. right. So right. Georgia didn't say we shouldn't be in the Supreme Court. Right. In fact, I think they maybe argued that lower court. Again, we I don't I don't think we have a full transcript of what happened in the lower court when it was dismissed. But probably Georgia said, what are you doing? We can't be, you can't sue, you know, this Circuit court has no jurisdiction here. Right. Anyway, but again, so it was dismissed. But the, the on the lower court. So, but again, uh, in that in those days, there were six justices on the Supreme Court, and by a five to one vote, Justice Aredell being the dissenter, 
Five out of the six justices interpreted Article 3 as saying, yes, yeah, sure, we think that a citizen of North Carolina can sue a citizen of, of Georgia. Right. So, so, to be specific, so to be specific, Paul, they, unlike what Madison had asserted, they basically sort of went against Madison and they said this means between a state and a citizen or a citizen of another state and a state. It went both, it ways. both ways. It's reciprocal. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, so, of course, what happens is you know, people are out. Well, let me just stop. So, Paul, that's pretty fascinating. So here, Madison had clearly asserted. Well, Hamilton actually, but yeah, Hamilton at the time. I mean, of writing, Madison said the same thing, but but I, yeah, but at the time of writing the Constitution, this only means a state can sue right. a a private citizen, and and and, right. but there's no way we never meant it to mean a citizen can go the other way. And here, over five to one ruling, the Supreme Court says no, it can go both ways. Right. Right. So everybody okay. thought that was clear. Hamilton and Madison and others had clarified. Remarkable. This. Yeah. And yet five out of six justices uh, disagreed. They may have been the only five people in the country who disagreed. Got it. Now, why did, they why did they go the other way, Paul? What was your thinking? They said we just read it literally. It says between states and citizens and other states, and we're just going to read that literally. We don't care what Hamilton well, the and said. there means both ways. They, they, that's how they interpreted it. Right. Okay. They said we're just going to literally read the wording. There's nothing here in 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 the wording that explicitly says it only goes one way. So we're just going to interpret it as going both ways, and we don't care what Hamilton said. We're, that's that's yes, what we. Think. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Right. So again, that was the the, the common understanding was rejected. Now, oh. what's interesting, and the next step, it gets even more interesting. So, so first of all, uh, Georgia says, well, we're not paying it. Good luck enforcing your 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 judgment, uh, Supreme Court. And at this point in time, Washington was president. Washington was not about to to invade Georgia and tell them to pay a debt, so they were never going to be paid, right? But anyway, but they went more than that. So the, the, there was there was actually outrage in Georgia. In well, not just in Georgia, around the country, oh, because that's... everyone was saying, "Wait a minute, who are these five guys?" I mean, we just approved this constitution a couple of years ago, and we, we the people, approved it because we were told, we were assured by the leaders of the Federalists, this wouldn't happen. And the ink is barely dry on the constitution, <laughs> and it's happened already. Right. What's right. going on? So there was really, there was a lot of outrage. Almost so they, they thought these five people, five individuals who are completely intervening with this broader understanding what they thought that the states have rights and states can't be pulled into another state and et cetera. Yeah. They so, thought this was a bait and switch. Got it. We got had it. been promised one thing and given something. Time. Right. 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 So almost immediately, I think within about a week, the, the, the Senate recommends an amendment, which became the 11th amendment. Right. Uh -huh. And again, it was almost, it was almost uh, unanimous. I remember the exact vote. It was something like, yeah. uh, again, back then they were, they were like, I think there were 28 senators or something. And it was like, you know, uh, 24 to four or something. It was overwhelming. Like, right. you know, so so the Senate almost immediately approves the recommendation. The House comes along also again, my overwhelming vote. I think it was something like, you know, 150 to three or something. I mean, overwhelming. It was, it was something quite unanimous, but almost. Yeah. And here's 11th Amendment, they, right? They, they approve this and they send it to the states for ratification. And it's immediately approved. Everyone wants this. They're, all the states are like, yeah. So anyway, so you have the text, right? So it says, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state. 
Now, notice they're not, they don't even admit that the Chisholm case was right. Because they say it's wrong. It's always been wrong. And they so that's why they say the judicial power should not be construed. They're not saying they're changing the Constitution. They're saying this is what the Constitution has always meant. And we're telling you, Supreme Court, you got it wrong. And in the future, you will not construe Article 3 to allow suits by individuals against states. Mm-hmm. So, again, this, so this 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 happens very quickly, right? Right. So it says that judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity concerned or prosecuted against one of the United States mm-hmm. by the citizens of another state or the citizens are subject of any of any foreign state. Right. So basically no one can sue a state. No one can sue uh, a, a state in federal court or when they say a foreign state, that doesn't mean a foreign government. Right. Or another state. A state can't yes, sue a state. Citizens are subjects of a foreign state. So if you're a subject, like an English subject, you can't sue the state of Georgia or any other state. Right. right? So again, it's individuals. A sovereign can sue another sovereign, but an individual cannot sue a sovereign. That's right. So so they were being they were being very explicit about that ambiguity here. Right. Right. There's they're saying we resolve any ambiguity. If you think there's any ambiguity in Article three, we're telling you how you must interpret that ambiguity. Right. So So again, it's. So an individual cannot sue another state in federal court or an individual of another foreign government, like someone in India can't come and sue a state in federal court either. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Right. But a state can sue another state in federal court. Yeah. States can sue other states. Right. Foreign countries can sue other states. And again, it would have to be in the in the Supreme Court. It wouldn't right. be in the lower courts because we saw that also. Right. Right. So, so again, the, the, the point is we have an ambiguity. The ambiguity is resolved. And, and now going forward, we think, okay, we've settled that issue, right? Well, we'll get back to the story. because right. so, so, so there is an ambiguity. And then it goes to court. The court resolve, quote unquote, resolves the ambiguity. Right. And then Congress gets involved. And, uh, and the whole country says, no, 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 court. You got it wrong. Right. So then, then, then the states resolve the ambiguity supposedly right. and we'll see what happens yeah right. so, sorry. So, so, we'll come, so yeah we'll come back to that so let's again let's just we'll, let's go sort of chronological order because i want to because we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that but the next most famous case probably the most famous case in history is a case called marbury versus madison it's very and probably all your your, your uh, listeners have at least heard the name although maybe they don't know what it stands for but but again 1793 is chisholm versus georgia um uh, about 10 years later, less than 10 years later, uh, Marbury versus Madison comes along. And again, let me let me set the background for this. Tell people what happened. So, uh, of course, Washington serves two terms. Adams comes in. Adams uh, is president uh, for four years. In the final days of the Adams administration, Adams appoints a, a, a bunch of people to the government of the District of Columbia. Now, Adams is a Federalist, right? So, uh, and Washington was a Federalist as well. Now, Madison had been a Federalist. Madison parted ways during the Adams administration. There were, there were some differences that we can talk about, which are interesting, but not relevant to today's conversation. Uh, Hamilton parted ways with Adams, with some of, the, some of the policies that Adams had. He didn't like it. So Adams uh, and Madison part ways. Madison joins Jefferson, and Madison and Jefferson uh, team up. 
And they agree because it gives them Madison's very, very influential. Madison's a little younger than Jefferson. And Madison says to Jefferson, listen, I'll support you if you agree I'm going to be your successor. So 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 they had this deal where Madison is going to become secretary of state to Jefferson. And then when Jefferson retires after a couple of terms, uh, Madison's going to become president. And that's what actually happened. So so they have this 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 deal set up. So anyway, so on the final days of the Adams administration, he wants to appoint a bunch of Federalists, his party, to positions of power. So uh, Adams appoints a bunch of officials to the District of Columbia. Now, again, this point in time, we actually created the District of Columbia. So we're moving the capital to the District of Columbia, and they're creating local government. So, uh, and Adams wants to fill the positions with his cronies, with his, with his you know, Federalist people. So he appoints this guy, Marbury. I think it's William Marbury as a, a a magistrate judge or a district of the uh, uh, a um uh, what do you call it a, a a well it's a magistrate judge basically he handles really minor 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 matters in the district of columbia right so and he's not the only one but but he but again Am, adams appoints a bunch of people and in as the final days they they uh adams signs the 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 warrant, I guess it was, appointing Marbury at, to this position as a magistrate judge. And he sends his appointment letter over to the Department of State, where they kept the official seal. In those days, there was like an official seal. And all the official documents, you had to stamp the paper with, with the official seal. So, uh, and it's done. They, they, the, second, the then Secretary of State, I forget who it was, but anyway, he stamps the paper and he basically puts it in an envelope and they're ready to send it to Mr. Uh, Marbury to inform him of the fact that he's been appointed as this magistrate judge. And uh -huh. he's not the only one. There's several different people that were appointed. Well, Jefferson is it now becomes president and Hamilton is his secretary of state. Uh, Hamilton walks into the secretary of state's office and he finds these papers lying on his desk, ready to go out in the mail, appointing Marbury and other guys to be, <laughs> to, be uh, to be these local magistrate judges. That's right. Madison says to Jefferson, what do I do with this stuff? He says, tear them up. I don't want, let's appoint our own guys. And I see that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> people in it. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, now, Again, it's almost like imagine if you were offered a job or sort of offered a job. So you go to a job interview, right? And the company decides to hire you and they even sign the letter and they have it in an envelope ready to go right. up. But before the envelope is mailed, the president of the corporation changes his mind. He says, nah, right. never mind. I want to hire somebody else. So right. that's basically what happened. The president of the United States says, I want to hire somebody else. Get rid of those things. It was signed. It was sealed. But it was never delivered. <laughs> but somehow Marbury gets wind of this. Apparently somebody had some friends and says, by the way, Marbury, you were supposed to have that job that they gave to somebody else. He says, really? He says, yeah, it was signed by President Adams. It was sealed with the seal of the United States. And, and Marbury says, well, I want this job. So he decides to bring suit. He's going to sue the United States to get them to give him the job. And who does he name? He names James Madison, who's the Secretary of State. Now, in those days, in fact, for for longest time, you could not sue the president. The president could never be named as a defendant. Now, that's changed with Donald Trump. All of a sudden, you could sue the president now because Donald Trump is his exception. But until Donald Trump, you couldn't sue the president. So, so Marbury couldn't sue the president. He sues James Madison, Secretary of State. 
because again, Madison was the guy who found the papers and said, well, whatever. So anyway, so again, the long story short is um, Marbury brings suit in the Supreme Court as a matter of original jurisdiction. Now, why did he do that? Well, there's two things. So first of all, the Judiciary Act of 1789 had purported to allow... Well, one second. Just wanna... So at that point, Marbury did that, just to give the audience just a quick review. Yeah, so this is 1801, Marbury yeah, is... 1801, but the, the 11th Amendment was already passed. Yes, yeah, 11th Amendment was passed. An individual cannot sue a government, a state government right. or government in federal court, right? It's already passed. Right now, that's a state government. This is the federal government. Right, right. So this is a new, new test. He's suing the right. federal government in federal court or in Supreme. Right. Court. Now, right now, the other thing, of course, you an individual cannot sue the federal government without its consent because it's sovereign. But Congress had consented to suit. Right. Okay. So Congress said we will allow people to sue us in federal court mm -hmm. because we're so gracious. We're going to allow that. And so they right. permit. They could have said no. They could. Congress could have said no suits against federal government by individuals. Not allowed. They could have said that, but they didn't. They passed Judiciary Act of 1789, and they said, we're going to allow individuals to sue us in federal court. But they said, you know what? We should be like the states. Go right to the Supreme Court. We don't want individual judges mucking around with the federal government. Again, the principle was basically the same. So based on that act, Marbury rightfully uses that act, and he goes and sues them in the Supreme Court. He sues right. the government. Okay, got it. So, so what happens, though, is the Supreme Court says, wait a minute, we don't have jurisdiction as an original matter. Article 3, Section 2 says explicitly the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in cases involving ambassadors and other public ministers and councils or when a state is a party. We, the Supreme Court, do not have jurisdiction as an original matter. Um, in this case, because we only have, again, original jurisdiction when it's but, a, but the, or the Judicial Review Act says he has that right, right? So, so this was the big controversy, right? right? The the question was, could Congress authorize uh, suits against the federal government in the Supreme Court? Which is in and violation of Clause 2, Article 3. Article, right, exactly. Right. And the Supreme Court ultimately said, no, they said Article three, Section two is very clear. Right. The Supreme Court only has original jurisdiction involving foreign countries that is ambassadors, public ministers and other Got councils and a state. And neither one of them apply. We understand why Congress might want suits against the United States to go right to the Supreme Court. Because for the same reason, we don't want individual. But you can't do it, Supreme Court says, because the Constitution doesn't allow it. The Constitution does not permit us to hear this case in the first instance. Now, there was a backup position Marbury had, which is just as a curiosity. He said, well, wait a minute. I'm a minister. I'm a public minister. Right. So I can. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, no. Look, it says ambassadors. Other public ministers council that means ministers of foreign governments, not right. local governments. So his strong his, his stronger legal footing was the Judicial Review Act, not really that. The Judiciary Act of 1780. That, that was his main argument. Right. But when he lost that, he said, Well, wait a minute, maybe you can say I'm a minister right. and they can outcome. Right. That's not that's not how it works. Yeah. But again, that but again, that's another example of a potential ambiguity, right? So again, Article three says ambassadors, other public ministers or consuls. Right. Now, there's a 
an interpretive rule uh, called known by their associates, which means if there's an ambiguity in, 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 in a term, you look at the other term surrounding it. And so he was trying to say, well, I'm a public minister. I'm a local minister, right? And like, no, but wait a minute, it says ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls. So the ministers there clearly means foreign ministers, not, not you know, some, some local minister. Mm -hmm. So again, they applied that standard rule of interpretation known by its associates to say, right. no, you're not a minister. And again, yeah. everyone's like, yeah, okay, that's pretty much it. So right. that's fascinating, Paul. So in the Chisholm versus Georgia case, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Chisholm, um, basically saying, yes, he can sue uh, the state and federal court, which um, in, in, in many ways went against, what it, 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 it sort of, when it, uh, it, it basically uh, took the literal view of that uh, clause one position, right? In article three, right? It, it basically said, it, it, we don't Our, care what Hamilton section, said. Yeah, article three, section two, yeah. Article, article three, section two, clause one. Yeah. Right, they said, we're gonna say it goes both ways, okay? Yes. And then in this case, the courts come and they say, there's no way we're gonna allow this guy to sue um, the government in federal court because in, in in the Supreme Court, in the Supreme Court, because he's not a minister or any of those things, and we don't care about the Judiciary Act that Congress passed. They just said we're gonna we're gonna right. enforce the Constitution, right? So the bot bottom line was the Supreme Court said we don't have to follow the Judiciary Act. Right, we're gonna follow the so Constitution. Congress said, told us the Supreme Court. Congress tells us the Supreme Court, you must hear this suit. Right. And, and they said, we don't care. Says, no, we don't. The right. Constitution doesn't allow it. Right. Now, right. Th this is crucial for a number of reasons. So the, the reason this case is so famous, Marbury versus Madison, is it's often used or it's often called the case that established the principle of judicial review. Now, judicial review is the idea that judges get to review acts of the legislature. Now, as I said, many countries don't have it. I mentioned the Netherlands doesn't have it. It's explicitly prohibited mm -hmm. by the Constitution. It's explicitly prohibited by the Constitution of Switzerland. Uh, so you, you don't have to have it. And 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 this case didn't actually say that. No, it's this, the Marbury versus Madison did not claim that the Supreme Court could review any act of the legislature. All they said was, we don't have power to hear this. We have to follow our own our own uh, guidelines. The Constitution says we don't have jurisdiction here, so we're not going to hear the case. They, there's nothing in Marbury versus Madison that even suggests that, that the Supreme Court can review any act of Congress. This was a very specific act of Congress involving the court's own jurisdiction. But again, the crucial part of this is that they said it was unambiguous, and really nobody disputed this for 100 years. It was unambiguous in the Constitution. The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction for foreign governments and states. It original jurisdiction, and it has appellate jurisdiction everywhere else. Got it. Marbury right. versus Madison said, Congress cannot make the jurisdiction of this court appellate when it's originally constitution, nor can it make the, 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 the jurisdiction of this court original where it's appellate in the constitution. Original and appellate are mutually exclusive, and never the twain shall meet, and if you want to amend the Constitution, you know, you can do like presumably what you did in Chisholm versus Georgia. You can change it maybe, but until until it's changed, that's the way it is. 
for, for the, and if you'd read Marbury versus Madison, you'd figure, well, for all eternity, appellate and exclusive are mutually, uh, appellate and, and original are mutually exclusive, never the twain shall meet. And again, we'll come back to it because we'll, we'll go in chronological order. But to make a long yep. story short, 100 years later, they decided, you know what? Marbury versus Madison was wrong. The, the Congress can make the Supreme Court jurisdiction original and appellate and vice versa and change it any way they want. So, but again, and, we'll and that happened because 100 years later. They switched it because arbitrarily the courts decided they were getting too many cases. Right, Paul? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. and again, we can, we, okay, maybe, but we, anyway, I don't know if we want to go there right now. But again, the point, so, so in... Uh, yeah, let's follow, yeah, because I mean, if we follow it all the way through, they went yeah. that way in one direction, and then a hundred years later, they're getting right. when, all these. When it became inconvenient for for judges for for the Supreme Court, they right. changed their mind and, and and they went to Congress. So so again, today the Supreme Court only hears about eighty cases a year, and uh, in the nineteen twenties, there was there was another Judiciary Act that said that the Supreme Court only had to hear appellate cases that they chose to take. And that's called a certiorari to make certain. So prior to the 1920s, uh, Congress didn't, didn't try and tamper with it because Marbury versus Madison said, well, you can't change it. It's, it's appellate versus, versus original. And if it's original, then that's it. So if a state wanted to sue you, if you know, they go right to the Supreme Court. If a, if a foreign country wanted to sue you or sue me, they go right to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court had a lot of original jurisdiction cases. And they, they told Congress, wait a minute, we just this is too much work. Let's just change things. Pass a new law that says we're going to make the original jurisdiction appellate and we won't cause a stir. We'll let it go through. And that's what they did. So it became inconvenient and they completely reversed themselves. So again, the so basically they, they sent all the cases to the lower today, what we call the circuit courts. And then the court, the, used to be the circuit court. Today yeah. The circuit court. Yeah. So they had the district courts and then they created the circuit courts in between. Right. Later the, on, well, the, the federal circuit courts of appeal, federal circuit courts. But basically Congress, when it was, I mean, the, the judges, when it was inconvenient for them to listen to hundreds and hundreds of cases, yeah. they just went the other way which was actually in the constitution that it should start originally with them and then go down to the appellate courts. Right. I mean, it, it, it was, it was explicitly in the constitution. Right. And so how do they do with that Paul? So here in one case, hundred years, in a hundred years before there, hundred years, hundred years of precedent, the most famous case in all of you, like if you ask an average guy on the street, Marbury versus Madison, you ever heard of it? Oh, of course I've heard of Marbury yeah, versus yeah. Madison. So hundred years before that in 17, whatever, 91. Yeah, 18, oh, in 1801. Uh, in they're jumping up and down. The courts are saying, we're definitely going to, we defend the, it's going to be, we're going to take it literally. hundred years later, they're basically going the other way and saying, well, you know, now it's inconvenient for us. They do we're a 180 degree turn. Right. So let me just ask this. So once the Supreme Court does that, um, can't someone, that's it, right? That's it becomes a law of the land. It's interpretation, right? Well, it's I mean, again, somebody, somebody could, I mean, again, there have been cases where people have challenged it, who have tried to go to the Supreme Court and file as original jurisdictions. They went the constitution says this and they just kicked out. They're like, now go, go to the district court. So people have tried it, but they don't. The Supreme Court is not allowed. Citing, citing the Constitution. Yes, yeah, citing you know, Marbury versus Madison. Yeah, and what does the Supreme Court say? They say dismissed, and, and they don't have to get. That's it. That's it. Dismissed. 
<laughs> they don't try and explain it because again, what are you going to do? You're going to say Marbury versus Madison was wrong. Well, it was wrong apparently. I and again, so the point is, we have a clear constitutional provision again in the original appellate jurisdiction Supreme Court. It's it's adjudicated by the Supreme Court unanimously in 1803, Marbury versus Madison in 1803, unanimous Supreme Court, all six justices say, yeah, this is clear, not even debatable. It's settled law for hundred years. Even Congress says, okay, yeah, you got us. We wanted right. to push it to the Supreme Court, but right. yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, and then the courts go the other way and essentially go against the constitution in some right. sense. So it's settled law for an entire century when it becomes inconvenient. So, so Everybody does it's, it's, it's eight. We've been here for about an hour. So the big takeaway is what? What's the big takeaway from this very nice analysis you just provided us? What's the key takeaway? Well, I would say no matter how clear you think a provision of the Constitution is, no matter how long the issue yeah. has been settled, it's subject to change. Right. So now <laughs> let's bring it back to the fact I'm, you know, my position and based on your, um, you know, your analysis is that when you look at the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment compared to Article uh, Two, Section One, Article Two, Section One. I mean, it's, it's an interesting analogy here, right? Article Two, Section One explicitly, well, not is confusing and saying only a natural born uh, person can become president. Right. You've given us, we have enough examples that we don't know what natural born is. Right. And then you have the advancement of the constitution, the fifth and the 14th amendments, which clearly reciprocate to each other on the question of due process and equal protection at the state and federal level. And there's been many, many court cases since then, which we'll talk about next time we connect, right. clearly showing that you cannot treat a naturalized citizen than a quote unquote a native born citizen and based on what you just shared the fact that things are changing and things have changed with the fifth and 14th amendment it would be unconstitutional at this point to deny me the right to become president that's right. really well, again, right. yeah i mean again it comes back to the interpretation of the fifth amendment we didn't really get into tonight right but but again the, the point is if if marbury versus madison can change something that's as clear as the the original jurisdiction of the courts then your argument is is an easy one right so because right. you're not you're, you're saying well wait a minute we're not we're not we're not trying to, to take 100 years of precedent and the most celebrated case in all of american history and a clear constitutional provision you're saying well wait a minute the Fifth Amendment says you can't discriminate. So sure, Article One is an uh, excuse me, Article Two, uh, as as an original matter, had certain qualifications which are themselves ambiguous. But again, put that aside. But Article Two was amended by the Fifth Amendment. That's what an mm -hmm. amendment means. Right. So if an amendment says something in Article Two is contrary, obviously the amendment takes precedence. So if Article right. if Article 2 says one thing and an amendment says something else, you follow the amendment. So if the Fifth Amendment says, which again, the courts have said for, for, for 60 years, the Fifth Amendment does not allow discrimination against citizens based upon their status as naturalized or natural born. You must treat, the Fifth Amendment guarantees that all citizens will be treated equally. No distinctions. Well, if that's what the Fifth Amendment says, then clearly Article Two uh, is in is in conflict, and it can't be enforced. Right, and then the Fourteenth Amendment. We get into the more specifics, but that that's the basic idea. And the Fourteenth Amendment says equal protection, and that's been used in many many cases with the naturalized citizen issue and a native born citizen, right, right. in various precedents. Yes. So there you go. So, Paul, I think 
I think that I think thank you very much. I think the key thing in this session that we've done with Paul Clark, uh, Paul's a professor of law, right, Paul? And you're well, also professor of philosophy, technically. Professor of philosophy, but you, you're also I teach legal theory. Yeah, but 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 you have a law degree and you practice law. Yeah. Yes, um, sorry, Paul's a professor of law, but he's a lawyer and he does practice law, right? Yes, and correct. and he does legal papers. But I think the key thing, Paul, is you've just walked us through this very interesting example starting with you know article three uh uh section section one clause one and two right right um, and again there are many others we, we could i mean we could give a different lecture on a topic different times but right the is, there, there are many many examples of where we have a, a a clause in the constitution which looks pretty clear right and the court will say yeah this is clear this is what it means and then 50 years later 100 years later another court comes along and says you know what we were totally wrong about that we got it 180 percent wrong Right. But in the case, but in the case of Article two, Section one, when it comes to the qualification of the pre president, there's actually been two amendments, fifth and the 14th, which clearly say you cannot discriminate between citizens, period. Right. And, and also even, say the Supreme Court has never weighed in on this. Right. Again, but, unlike Marbury, where the Supreme Court actually unanimously said you can't do something, they changed their mind. Right. The Supreme Court's never even addressed this issue. Right, right. right. Now, so lower court, lower courts have fiddled around with it, but there's never been a Supreme Court president. Right, but here you have two actual amendments to the con to yes. article to right. to address this. Yes. So anyway, Paul, thank you. I think this this gives uh, particular to people out there who says the Constitution, quote unquote, never changes. I hope uh, we'll share this video uh, broad and wide, Paul, uh, to let everyone know the Constitution does change, and go. Everyone should listen to this again and again and again. And, and as you said, Paul, there's many, many examples of this. Paul, next time we meet, we're going to really go through some of the very important case law, right? Okay. They came about on this issue with the naturalized citizen and native born, which again referred to the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments by the courts to say you can't discriminate between citizens. And that, okay. I think people really enjoy that. I think it'll just That's give further, further support why I can become president. Yes. All right. Paul, thank you very much. Hold on one second, Paul. I'll be right back. I'm just going to stop this here before I go, and then um, you and I will come back and just finish up. Hold on. All right, everyone. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Paul. Hold on, Paul.